welcome to Your Career Podcast. If you're looking for inspiration in your career or job search, you're at the right place. I'm Jane Jackson, your career management coach and author of Navigating Career Crossroads. For more career advice and support, go to janejacksoncoach.com and find all you need to create the career of your dreams. Welcome to Jane Jackson Careers, a podcast that takes your career to the next level. Here's your host, Jane Jackson, author of Amazon Careers bestseller, Navigating Career Crossroads. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. There are over 180,000 book titles to choose, so give it a go and get your free audiobook today from audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. Well, hello and welcome back to my careers podcast, where I interview fascinating professionals who have made amazing career changes and through grit and determination have become a huge success. Today, I'm honored to welcome best-selling author Andrew Griffiths to the show. Now, Andrew is a very special person in my life as he is my author mentor and inspiration to get my book, Navigating Career Crossroads, written. Without his advice and unwavering support, honestly, I wouldn't have had the courage to become a published author. Now back to Andrew. It has been 15 years since Andrew's first book, 101 Ways to Market Your Business, first hit the shelves. Andrew now has 12 best-selling titles which are sold in over 60 countries. Starting life as an orphan in Western Australia and growing up all too quickly in the seedy red light district of Perth, Andrew learned to become a survivor. The lessons learned in his battle for survival in life and in business have made him one of the most successful and highly sought after authorities in the small business and entrepreneurial space. After 30 years as a business owner in industries as diverse as tourism, advertising, retail and consulting, he's been there and done it. Now today, Andrew shares the stage with leaders and inspirational thinkers from celebrity entrepreneurs, including Richard Branson, to the up-and-coming young entrepreneurial elite like Daniel Priestley, to game-changing politicians, famous authors, inspirational individuals who have done extraordinary things and many more. We describe Andrew as the big man with the big heart, and he's on a mission to share the entrepreneurial rites of passage that he's learned to help others set themselves apart from the world. So let's welcome Andrew Griffiths to the show. Good morning, Andrew. Hello, Jane. That's a very big welcome, isn't it? I feel it's difficult for me to live up to all of that now. I know. My goodness, what a life you have led. I'm absolutely in awe. And actually, there's a whole lot more that I could have said, but I'd rather you tell. You tell everybody. So how about let's find out all about you, Andrew. And to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your early days and your childhood career aspirations. Sure, sure. As you mentioned, Jane, an unconventional childhood, I think is probably 
easiest way to say it. Uh, like a lot of people, growing up as an orphan, I was actually born in Melbourne in St Kilda, but moved at six months of age across to Perth. So I had a very unusual life with lots of challenges and lots of the real I guess, interruptions and bits and pieces which make for a bit of a traumatic life earlier on. But one of the things that I had in my system for as long as I could remember was this this passion for me to be a marine biologist, of all things, that for some reason got embedded in my brain somewhere at an early age. I don't even really know where that came from, but I learned to snorkel and I was in the water whenever I could in amongst that. I think in the early part of my life, it was probably a little bit of escapism as well. But as a kid, I'd ride a push bike 20 kilometres to the ocean and go and spend all day long snorkeling off the beaches of Perth and never worried about sharks back in those days for some reason. But that was my main drive. And I think somewhere in there also, I I was a, a bit of an entrepreneur as a child too I was always wheeling and dealing with the other kids and you know buying and selling and finding opportunities to sell stuff sometimes perhaps not as legitimately as I would have liked now that I'm a bit older I'm I cringe at some of the things that I did but <laughs> it set a bit of a, the scene for me as a young kid mm, I didn't know about the marine biologist bit oh. I mean I know a lot of other things about you but that's a new one but, um, <laughs> but, but certainly growing up you know with the ocean and the sand and the beach and everything it makes a lot of sense so moving on from then you've morphed into lots of different things and you've just had such a fascinating career. So when you grew up a little bit and as a teenager and young 20-something, what was your first real job? Well, I did a few things. My passion to become a marine biologist was I'd fallen in love with the idea. So I finished school, managed to somehow spend go to university briefly and uh with this desire went to university in townsville so i was living in sydney at the time traveled all over australia and lived in different places but i i was at 17 ish and i went to james cook university in townsville which is one of the leading universities for marine biology in the world when i got there i kind of had this realization that that as a marine biologist, I was actually probably going to spend most of my time in a lab looking at a microscope and working in a fairly strange and, to me, a fairly bland government environment. I had this dream of being a marine biologist where I'm riding humpback whales through the ocean and, you know, freeing willy and doing giant marine (laughs) biology things. That's what I had fallen in love with. And I'd done some work experience at a CSIRO lab and I had gone to James Cook Uni for a little while and I went, I'm learning all this stuff, chemistry, whatever, and I realised all I wanted to do was dive and be the ocean and so I left uni disgracefully I think it was after maybe five or six months there are a lot of reasons I was a ward of the state and the funding hadn't come through blah 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 but anyway I went back to Sydney and I was 18 at that stage and I got a part-time job in a dive shop scuba diving retail store in Asquith just out of Sydney and interestingly enough the owner was a crazy Canadian guy and before I knew it He'd somehow sold me this business. So I was 18. I went into a bank and said, I need some money. I can't even remember how much it was, but it wasn't huge. It was maybe twenty dollars or $25,000 or something like that. And I walked out with a check and in the 80s when you could do that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I was this kid that owned my own business. So that was really my first, I guess, grown-up job. And I certainly wasn't grown up when I was doing it. 18 years old and you're a business owner. A bad business owner, but I was a business owner. (laughs) Well, you still owned it, and you managed to get a loan from the bank. You must be able to talk your way into many things, Andrew. (laughs) Well, and and in those days, it was a lot about that. It was a time when you sat down next to across from the bank manager, and you had to be pretty compelling about the story. And interestingly enough, the bank was only a few doors up from this dive shop. So I think the bank manager had the realisation that, well, 
how far can this young fella really run? And the, I got to know the bank manager very well. Every morning he would come by and give me the checks that I'd bounced the day before. And he would mentored me. He took me under his wing and a little bit by little bit. The first few years, it was a disaster. I had no idea how to run a business. I knew how to blow bubbles. That was about the extent <laughs> of my ability, but I didn't understand profit margins or stock or what to charge or any of those things. But as often happens in life, you get these wonderful people that appear. And if you're perhaps smart enough to listen to them, they'll share their advice and wisdom. And that's what happened for me. And I had a few really good people that came along, taught me how to charge what I was worth, taught me how to aspire to be the best at what I do, all of those wonderful little lessons. And I hadn't had those as a child growing up. As I said, it was very traumatic, a very violent upbringing, no real role models, a lot of abuse and neglect. I was probably not as trusting. It took me a little while to start listening to other people and taking their advice on board. But when I did, and people that I knew had no vested interest, they were just there to kind of help me and offer really beautiful advice. Everything changed in my world. And that was one of the bigger lessons I think I've learned and has stayed with me for the next 30 years. Oh, that's amazing. You must somehow draw the right people into your life. And there's a saying, the teacher arrives when the student is ready. And from what you've said about, you know, the very challenging early childhood that you had, by the time you were 18, you were ready to be looked after in a way, or at least mentored or coached. And they were just arriving and helping you. So when you were running your dive shop, how long did that last for? And what happened afterwards? So with the dive shop, that went for about four years, I think it was, from memory. It didn't end well, and it was an interesting experience there. One of the chaps that was working for me, he wanted to buy into the business, and I agreed to let him buy in. And uh, we just renovated uh, about a year before, and it was going really well financially then. It was really up and running thanks to the advice I'd received. But this chap wanted to buy in, and I said, okay, well, look, that's fine, but I need to have a holiday. I'm really tired. I want to go on a sailing trip in the middle of the ocean and chase whales. And so we agreed, signed all the paperwork. I said, pay me when I get back. And maybe that's not the best bit of advice. Not the best knowledge thing to do. But anyway, I sailed out to with some friends on a boat. I was away for a couple of weeks. And then when I came back, the dive shop was gone. This guy had sold everything. He'd basically taken everything in a couple of days and just disappeared off the face of the planet. And he'd told everyone that I was away and he was going to do another renovation. So he sold all the dive gear, sold our boat sold all of our vehicles and, and just literally yeah, dismantled it. So I got back and rung my girlfriend at the time and she said, where have you been? The dive shop's gone. And I thought she was just had gone to be crazy. And I've turned up at the dive shop and there's not even any locks on the doors. This guy had literally taken the carpet off the, the kitchen sink. He had literally taken the kitchen sink. Like it was extraordinary. It was like tumbleweed rolling across the floor. My bank accounts had been emptied because he had access to the, yeah, all this stuff. And I'm just standing there going, well, I've got no money. I've got no business. I've got a pile of debts. These are all in my name. I called the police. They couldn't do anything about it. It was a civil complaint. So I didn't know what to do. So I grabbed the newspaper. And I thought, well, I've got to get a job. And I, the first job in the classifieds was AAA, sell encyclopedias door-to-door in Tasmania. So I rang them. And I went in for an interview, and that night I flew to Tasmania and started selling encyclopedias door-to-door whilst I was trying to work out all the mess of the dive shop and all the stuff that was, you know, all the fallout from that. And it was in July. July in Tasmania. July in Hobart. For those who aren't familiar with Hobart, it's really, really cold. Knocking on doors. The objective is not so much to sell an encyclopedia set, but to actually get inside so that you don't die. And very, very compelling for salespeople. Anyone I know who's sold stuff door-to-door will say it's the greatest lesson in sales they've ever had. 
That's amazing. I didn't know that there really were encyclopedia salespeople. <laughs> I, I used to read about it, but then you're a real encyclopedia. Well, I think the good thing is, is that that must have given you a little bit of a taste for books and knowledge and all that sort of thing, because if you weren't selling any, you could read them. <laughs> it was like that. I think it gave me a wonderful insight into people. Mm. And in Tasmania then, so this is in the late, when well, mid-80s, at this stage of the game, I guess it was, or around there. And it was an interesting interesting time because I was amazed. You'd knock on the door and say, oh, g'day, this is what I'm doing. And people say, sure, come in, tell us. And I thought, wow, people are so nice and so friendly. These days, could you imagine knocking on a door? I mean, people set their dogs loose. I, mean, I did have some funny stories. I did have dogs set on me. I had a guy pull a shotgun on me. I got trapped in a house by some religious folks that gave me 20 minutes and I had to give them two hours for their story. It was just a lot of very, very funny stories around it. The, the life of a traveling daughter encyclopedia salesman is one that is uh, fraught with all types of weirdness. Yeah, sorry, Jane. I would think that at some stage you must have thought, I don't think this is sustainable for the rest of my life. I need to do something (laughs) different. When was that epiphany? I think it was about six months I did that job for. We'd been traveling around Tassie and we'd actually gone, because you work in crews. So our crew then moved over to South Australia and I was there for a while. It was just, it's a bit of a Lord of the Flies kind of existence because you only work at nights and you're with the crew for the rest of the time. So you don't make any money. It's a bit of a funny little experience. But I was very, very good at it. And so they had aspirations for me to become management. I thought, oh, I'm not going to be selling encyclopedias door to door as a manager or whatever. So I left that job and I chased a girl to Perth. And I, there, in, when I got into Perth, I joined what everyone did at the time. I got into the mining industry and I got a job in mineral exploration with one of the large companies, uh, CRA it was then, so Rio Tinto. And I was given a land cruiser, a map and a two-way radio and a dog and said, go out here and put dirt in little bags, which was pretty much what that job entailed. I just drove for 15 hours from Perth into the middle of nowhere and hope that you can read a map and find where you're going to be. And I really enjoyed it, but it was, again, very, very full-on experience. You had to be a little bit careful and very, like you worked alone most of the time as well. So you just, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and you've got everything in your four-wheel drive and a two-way radio to connect you back to Perth. And that was about it. Wonderful experience. That's amazing. Actually, I was starting to piece everything together thinking, yeah, this all kind of makes sense. And then you got to the mineral exploration bit and I thought, oh, okay, so this path is a little bit unusual because I thought (laughs) running a dive shop, you learn how to run a business. Going into encyclopedia sales, you were honing your sales capability and relationship development and all that, which was great. And then I thought, oh, the mineral exploration. However, if you were going into the middle of nowhere, I guess what it taught you was resourcefulness. Absolutely. And it was a nice, I'd done a lot of diving too in the time I had the dive shop. It was kind of nice to dry out. It's a strange term, but divers often say that where you go, okay, I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be wet. So when I did dive shop, I did a lot of commercial diving work as well, recovering boats and doing that stuff. And it's not on a beautiful Palm Beach morning and that it's 3 a.m. in July in the middle of winter where you've got to go out and you've got to do some repairs on the bottom of a boat in the middle of Sydney Harbour and it's cold and dark and things with teeth floating around all over the place. And, and it lacks that it's not, um, yeah, you're not at a resort in the Maldives teaching uh, German tourists how to dive. It, it has its upside. So you reach a stage where you go, I just don't want to be cold and wet for a while. So it was a bit of a dry out for me. But I also, in the mineral exploration job, it was very easy to advance. It paid good money. And they got me to start teaching people bush survival skills, what to do. And I love teaching. That's one of the reasons I actually enjoyed diving. I really enjoyed teaching people to dive. 
and it wasn't long then and I was running survival training, first aid training, all of those types of things for all of the other guys working out in the bush as well. But I did it for a few years and that that was long enough for me. I think it was maybe two years and something, maybe a little bit longer, but it was, yeah, I needed to get back to the water then. So that's when I moved to Cairns. Mm, and so what happened in Cairns? Well, I came up here because my sister was here and we were very close as growing up together. We were together the whole time and we're blood brother and sister and it was easy for me to come to a place like Cairns which is right on the Great Barrier Reef. Diving is so big up here so I arrived and I had a, had a job literally within five minutes teaching people how to dive and I was working for a large Japanese company and it was great so it was a very easy place for me to settle in and like anywhere when you're traveling around I think if you can get work that certainly makes it a bit easier for that transition so and it's a very cool place to live I still live in Cairns today this is 25 years ago that I got here so when you look at that it's it's, must be something here that I like to uh not have to, to have not left just yet Oh, I'm sure it's a beautiful part of Australia. I haven't been there yet. I must come and visit sometime. Oh, please do. It is lovely. Don't come at this time of year, which is February now when it's really hot and humid, but any other time of the year, it's nice. Mm. Now, Andrew, you're now this best-selling author, Mm. and you've got over 12 best-selling titles under your belt. So I want to piece the pieces together. You what went back to Cairns, <laughs> you were teaching diving, you've already had an amazing life, and I would imagine you're still pretty young at that stage. Yeah. And then now, fast-forwarding, you are my author mentor. You fly around the world training people, coaching people, talking about all sorts of entrepreneurial ventures and how to become an author and all this. So join the dots for me. What what happened, right? That's the point. So I was working for the company here and part of my role was I was running their dive operation. So that would mean I would oversee the day-to-day dive teaching on the boats, but also we had pontoons out on the Great Barrier Reef. So I was in charge of doing the moorings for the pontoons and the commercial side of it. So making sure these big pontoons are secured, etc. I was working on one particular job which was putting in a helicopter mooring pontoon out on the Great Barrier Reef. And I was out based on a boat out there for about three weeks. And this has been a long project. And on the last dive where I'd literally gone down to check the shackles on the chains and all the rest of it, they were bringing the pontoon out from the city. I came up, surfaced, got out of the water, and I felt strange. It's the only dive I'd done on the day, but I just felt a bit unusual. So I took off my gear and jumped back in the water, and it felt like I jumped into a pot of boiling oil. And I just literally screamed out. They thought I was getting attacked by something. And I felt like I was on fire. It was terrible. And I knew straight away that I had a neurological problem and a decompression sickness. And so I had to be evacuated from there, taken back into cans. I was put in a portable recompression chamber with a nurse, which is very cozy. I mean, I could barely fit into it. And it's me and a nurse in there. So her legs, her knees are around my ears. And we're in there for like six or seven hours, this poor lady. And I'm in pain and moaning and groaning and semi-conscious. Anyway, we're in there. They put it in a light aircraft and then flew us down to Townsville where you get winched up the outside of the building and then connected to a bigger chamber. And so that was a very major thing. I came very close to dying and suffered a lot of injuries in terms of tissue damage, some brain damage as a result of that. It's basically nitrogen bubbles lodging in your body. And as the gas expands, you know, it puts pressure on blood flows, uh, nerves, 
things like that, and tissue can die. So it was a very bad situation and a serious, serious bend. The bottom line, the short of it all, though, is that I couldn't dive again. And I, this company was very good. Again, Japanese have that wonderful philosophy. And they said to me, well, look, you can't dive anymore. You've got a big mouth, so we'll put you into sales and marketing. <laughs> and, I, and I went, well, okay. But, you know, it was interesting again, Jane. For me, I was pretty grumpy. I was bitter and twisted because I did think it was their fault. They'd pushed us hard timeframes and all the rest of it, and I felt a bit resentful about that. So I went into this sales job a little bit resentful and with a bit of a bad attitude, actually, to be really honest. And as a twist of fate would happen, within almost a couple of weeks of me being in this job, I've ended up in Sydney at a trade show called ATE, the Australian Tourism Exchange, which is really the biggest event in the tourism year. And that's where tourism operators sell their product to people from around the world. You know, you've got to really produce it. I had this fear that I, I was a diver. So I've got a beard, I think, at the time, and ponytail and earrings. And I, what is it, a checkered shirt type thing in jeans. That was my uniform. And I go, well, I don't want to go into this corporate environment where I've got to wear a suit and tie. I don't want to become one of those kind of people. So anyway, I'm at this trade show with my boss, the CEO, and he's just looking at me, shaking his head, asking himself, why on earth was I there? And I had this such a terrible attitude that people would be walking by our booth and I would almost snarl at them. And I was just being a child, really. And anyway, the first day evolved and about three o'clock, the CEO just stormed off. I realized he was a bit grumpy with me and I, I started to walk back up to the hotel about an hour or two later. And it dawned on me, you know, I had this big realization and I've been very fortunate to have a number of them in my life. And I'm asking myself, what the hell am I doing? I have this opportunity to get into sales and marketing and be retrained by one of the largest companies in the world. They're prepared to invest in me. I've got no qualifications, no anything. They could have just paid me out and I walked away and, you know, all the rest of it. So I went, oh, I have completely blown it. And I ended up by David Jones up in the city there. I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I'm just walking around the streets and in the shops and just going, oh, what have I done? And this old chap came up to me. I was in David Jones in the menswear department, kind of looking at the suits, having a bit of a, what am I doing here? You know, and this old chap came up and he said to me, are you okay? You know, you look terribly distressed. And I said, oh, look, I've just blown the wor- the biggest opportunity of my life and I've ruined it. I knew my boss was going to sack me the next day. And he said, well, do you want to do something about it? And I said, I do, I do anything. And he said, well, tell me everything. So I told him everything. He said, right, are you still serious about doing something about it? I said, yes. He said, right. And he starts fitting me out for a suit. He makes a phone call. A lady appears out of nowhere and starts hemming up the trousers. I bought a briefcase. I've got a tie. I didn't even know who knew how to tie ties. I've got all this stuff. I'd got a haircut. He organized for me to get a haircut. And just a complete transformation. And I felt like a million dollars, completely emptied my bank account, absolutely. And I had to send him like another $500 or something. Who had credit cards then? And anyway, and I've gone back to the hotel and I don't think I slept all night. I think I stood up because I didn't want to crease my suit. And the next morning I went down to the reception at the agreed upon time, 7.30, 8 o'clock or something, to meet my boss. And he walked past me three times before he realized it was me. And then he kind of, I just did this kind of smiling. And then he kind of came up to me and went, what the hell have you done? And I said, Terry, I'm so sorry. Please give me one more go. And he pulled out of his pocket my dis- dismissal notice that he'd had faxed, typed up at the office and faxed through and my ticket to fly home that day. And he said, you made such an effort. He said, I'll give you this morning. 
and we'll see. If it's not a new Andrew Griffiths, then I'm sorry, but you're on a plane this afternoon. And it's funny, we're very good friends and we still laugh about that to this day. And he was, again, a pivotal guy. I went in there, we had an amazing day, everything worked fantastically, I sold a lot and I embraced this opportunity. And of course, that led on to me spending the next five years, basically, traveling around the world as their international sales manager. And I spent one month in Australia, one month in America doing sales calls in Europe, right throughout Asia, uh, New Zealand, India, just everywhere. And of course, that then taught me I had a five-year major crash course in how to market. That was the link, Jane, the missing link. Wow, what an amazing story. Again, really almost plunging into the depths of, you know, everything going wrong, getting a chance, having a bad attitude, having someone like an angel almost appear to give you a bit of a wake-up call. And then it's all in the attitude, isn't it? It is totally in the attitude. And I think also sometimes we've got to let situations play out a little bit. Like what often seems like the very worst possible thing that can happen is in many respects the very best possible thing that can happen. You know what? I give thanks every single day of my life for those nitrogen bubbles because without them, what would I be doing? I mean, you can only dive for so long. You can only go up that food chain career path so long as a diver. There's a limit. There's no global diving company that you can work for realistically. So there is a bit of a limit to where that goes. The reason I can write books and the reason I can do what I do was really all because of that moment. And it was that pivotal moment when I got it and I went, okay, I need to take radical action here to improve. I can't just turn up the next morning, look the same and go, well, I'll try harder. It, was, it had gone way beyond that point. And really, even though I'd done every, all of that stuff that I'd done, my job was still not guaranteed that morning. And again, I admire the fact that Terry didn't just say, oh, okay, you've had a shave and a haircut and got a suit, so everything's fine now. I had to show that I had the right attitude. That's what he cared about, actually, more than my appearance, was that did I have the right attitude? And again, I think a lot of times in life, that, as you said, it's the attitude we bring to the table. And I see that whether I'm helping people to write books, whether I'm presenting on a stage, whether I'm coaching business owners or teaching them. Uh, to me, to be honest, it's all about attitude. And it's very easy to develop a bad attitude for lots of reasons. That's, that's a day-long podcast to talk about all of those kind of things, Jane. Yeah, exactly. I know when I'm coaching individuals who are going for interviews, I always say to them that your attitude is one of the most important things because if you've got the wrong attitude, there's no way you're going to progress in the interviews as well. But for you, it's almost like, you know, that saying when it's dark enough, it's got to be dark enough before you can see the stars. Mm. You got to that really dark place and almost died. I mean, I have, I mean we almost didn't have you on earth, Andrew. And mm. so you've completely turned it around and so now with this international experience traveling around the world and what about when did you write your first book how did that happen well i left this company after five years met a lady and got married it wasn't sustainable to have a relationship in the world i was on the road nine months of the year ten months of the year so and anyone who's had that kind of travel knows that it takes a bit of a toll on you physically and you know, I'd got unhealthy and just I'd have to get up in the middle of it when I was traveling. I'd look out the window, would have no idea where I was. I'd read the hotel compendium to see what city I was in. And then that still didn't help. And, I, you know, when you're in that thing. So I had to I got in the routine of writing a note and putting it on the bathroom window. You're in San Diego to do this event 
you know, rah, rah, oh, okay, because my brain had just got fried. Anyway, I started a marketing company, and I've always been a small business kind of guy, always been passionate about small business. And in Cairns, there was not a lot of advice for small business owners, so I started a small business marketing company and with my wife at the time. And it was really nice. She was ex-advertising agency, Carolyn, so she had a lot of big ideas that I could then translate for smaller business. And I noticed that a lot of people were started to come to me and go, oh, look, you know, I, I need more customers, I need brochures, or I need this, or I need that, but I haven't got any money, and I don't really know how to do it, and, and rah, rah, and, it, and it's not a very good business model for me just to be giving out free advice all the time. At some stage, you've obviously got to pay the rent, and it's time-consuming, but I also wanted to help people. So I started to write fact sheets, and I would go, right, so what am I getting asked all the time? So I'm getting asked about what should I charge for my goods and services, or how do I get more customers, or how do I get rid of bad customers, or how do I do this? I started to write these fact sheets, and I'd print them out, and I'd put them on the wall, and people could just come in and help themselves. Or I would fax them through to them back in the days, you know, post-World War II when we used fax machines. And I looked over at this wall one day and I went, wow, you know, there were a pile of people standing around pulling these flies out. People going, wow, this is really great information. And I thought, wow, I've got 50 of these fact sheets and it all looked nice and neat on the wall. You know what? If I wrote another 50, I could perhaps put this into a book and call it 101 Ways to Market Your Business. I thought, wow, that's an interesting idea. So I reached out to a few marketing friends of mine at the time and said, well, what do you reckon about this as an idea? Just reaching out. And I was surprised that most of them said, Andrew, you're a nice bloke and all, but really, who are you to write a book? You haven't got any qualifications. You run a little two-bit marketing company in Cairns, a small business, not really that sophisticated. Like, really? You know, who's going to publish you? All that kind of stuff. So anyway, I completely ignored that and that actually just gave me more of a fire in my belly to do it because I knew that these small business owners were having these problems. I had enough evidence in front of me to support that. So I wrote another 50 fact sheets, wrote 51 and 101 ideas and I thought, I'm going to call this 101 ways to market your business. At the time, it was really the publishing world was very strong. So I sent it to one publisher and via a friend of mine and they came back to me and said, look, it's not for us, but we've got friends at Allen and Unwin and they're looking for some business writers and you would be perfect for them. Do you mind if we send your manuscript over? I said, sure. They sent the manuscript over and it was funny. I got a phone call the next day from Allen and Unwin straight away. That's unheard of in the industry. And I thought it was a joke. So my receptionist at the time was answering the phone. She said, it's Alan and I went on the call, publishing. I said, no, it's just the local radio guys giving me a crazy call kind of thing because, you know, all the radio people and all the rest of it when you live in a little town. And I just pull on my leg, just hang up. And she said, but she keeps ringing back. I said, just hang up. It's just the radio station. It's loco. Anyway, I finally get a fax from her a little bit later in the morning saying, hi, Andrew, this is Annabelle Crabb from Alan Owen. We really do want to publish your book. It's not the local radio station, which was just kind of hilarious, really. (laughs) And they published it and it sold and people loved it and I got great advice. Then they said, would you like to write another one? And I went, sure. And then they said, that one worked. And do you want to write another one? And do you want to write another one? And, and it just kind of, that's how it happened. And as you know, Jane, as an author yourself, once you write a book, then people track you down and they want you to talk. They want your advice. Your profile starts to grow. And it leads to, like for me, where I am today. Oh, you, it's such a great story because now you've got 12 best-selling titles. And actually, I have in my hot little hands right now my favorite book of yours called The Me Myth. Uh, which is you. which is your story, your life story, and how you overcame the limiting beliefs. And it's so inspiring that it says, you know, we all have the ability to live the life we want. 
And yet so many of us don't. We sit there and we hope that someone else will do it. But you're the sort of person who just gets up, fixes it or gets on with it, basically, with a really good attitude. And now, I mean, because... I attended this wonderful program and you were one of the mentors there and I learned so much about writing books because now you travel around the world telling people how to become an author. Mm, Absolutely. And I think too, Jane, along the way, I've had some interesting little epiphanies and crossroads. And I think I've got better over the years at dealing with crossroads and how I manage them. Like one funny experience for me happened many years ago, talking about taking control of your life, just to put a bit of perspective on that. When I was around 16, I think it was maybe a little bit, I was really off the rails. I was a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, crime had kind of snuck into it. The typical, I don't know what you'd call it, the troubled child kind of scenario, being in and out of different carers, no real stable environment, all that kind of stuff. And it was a very predictable path. You hang out with the wrong crowd, alcohol, drugs, everything starts to speed up. And uh, you go from being a juvenile delinquent to being a criminal. And it's a bit of a thin line in there. But to be a part of a peer group, and the power of that peer group is what holds you. And I remember I was waiting for these guys, my peer group, to come pick me up one day. And it was like Friday night around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And I remember it so vividly that it was just a beautiful afternoon. And I just had like a bolt of lightning. It really did hit me saying, righto, fella, what are you doing with your life? You're a kid. Which path are you going down? You get in that car tonight, you go down that path. And that leads to tears. That leads to sadness. That leads to people being hurt. That leads to who knows what. You got It's time for you to be your own person. You got to choose right here, right now. And it was a very pivotal moment in my life and I certainly did choose right then and there to be my own person and I didn't get in the car that night and I kind of disappeared and I laid low and then I when I was 17 went up to Townsville and did all of those kind of things at the uni and I think I've been blessed that I've had very very specific crossroad happenings or events that have made me sit back and go okay here I am looking at left or right Which one am I going to take here? And fortunately, I've made the right decisions, I guess, generally. Not always, but, you know, more times than not, I've made the right decisions. And I feel quite blessed as a result of that. Actually, as you're talking about your career crossroads, you know, with everything that's gone in your life, it's actually life and career crossroads. And and my book is called Navigating Career Crossroads, inspired (laughs) inspired so much by you too, Andrew. And honestly, everything that you do now with all the speaking and the traveling and the mentoring and providing really just such inspirational webinars that people can dial into. And you provide so much information freely and of course you know the workshops that we need to go and to pay for but there's so much just complimentary information that you provide to everybody you're a very very generous man now i want to find out about some of the really fun stuff that you've been doing because you're up on stage speaking a lot and you share the stage with some amazing people including people like richard branson and seth godin so tell me a little bit about that side of your world oh i haven't shared a stage with seth godin but i would love to but i I've had the fortune of being uh, part of Richard Branson's team at a big event in, in Melbourne with Tim Ferriss as well, Gary Vandichuk, I think a little bit later in the year, and just 
Uh, so many household names around Australia that you look at from the, the likes of even Tim Reed, and I think that there's so many, so many presenters all over the place that I just have the pleasure of that. But for me, again, what really drives me, Jane, is I have a burning desire to help people, and whether they be business owners or people that want to write books or people that want to, I guess, transition in their life in reality. And writing a book, as you know, it really is a part of that transition process. But with business owners, I see when they've got a business and it's not really giving them what they want. I have this strong desire to help them. So when I have a chance to get on a stage anywhere in the world, whether it's in the States or it's in Asia, and and I've worked for extraordinary companies like L'Oreal, Schwarzkopf, Hewlett-Packard, CBS, Columbia Broadcasting, you know, huge media companies, News Limited, Telstra, Optus, all of these kind of organizations. At some stage in the last 10 years, I've presented, joint ventured with them. And I guess I've become that authority in the entrepreneurial world where people like what I have to say. And I think they pick up on the fact that I'm passionate about what I do. And I can't fake that. I can't fake being passionate about what I do. It's, I think one of my character flaws is that I can't fake that. If I'm not excited and if I'm not revved about it, I just can't do it. And thank goodness I'm in a position now where I can actually say, you know what, that doesn't really float my boat. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Get someone who's going to be a bit more passionate about it. And that's good and bad because I have a bit of a bad attitude now where I can go, oh, no, I don't want to do government stuff. It always drives me insane. So it's too hard. I'm not interested. And you get a little bit more selective about that side of things. But yeah, you get interviewed all the time for podcasts, such as obviously here I am today with you, but I probably do two or three podcast interviews a week all over the world. I write for Inc.com out of New York City. And up until recently, I was the only Australian columnist for them. And that's just a seriously cool scenario and A-game thing. So my day is filled with doing the stuff that I really love to do. I do a lot of workshops around the place. I do a lot of mentoring. I do all the rest of it. And I also have my the stuff that I like to do, that my not-for-profit stuff, which I think as you get older, you want to do more and more of that kind of stuff as well. So I laugh, Jane. I tell people I've spent 30 years to get the business that I actually have always wanted. And that's really what I've got now. And a lot of that was figuring out what I didn't want. And what I've got now is a business which is the one that everyone talks about, that you can operate from anywhere in the world. All you need is an internet connection, access to an airport, and it really doesn't matter. I can live anywhere. And I quite laugh about the fact that I always said that, oh, you know, when I didn't need to live in Cairns, I'd probably move on. And yet I find myself still living in Cairns even though now I don't need to, I can live anywhere. And I go, isn't that interesting how that kind of happens? Mm-hmm. And get old, you have different values, different views, different reasons for being somewhere. What an amazing journey. Just think, growing up in Western Australia as an orphan, having a really tough childhood, falling into some really interesting jobs and owning a dive shop to start off with to where you are today is incredible. So mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you, as an entrepreneur and a very successful author, what are your top three tips for success? Mm. So, very, very good question. And I ponder these kind of things and write about these things quite a lot. So, the top three tips that I would have for people now, today, is the first one is it's extraordinarily important that we develop the skill and the ability to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And we live in a world that is changing at such a rapid pace that if you can't master that, like we learned how to use something today, next week it's obsolete and we've got to learn something else. So if you can't develop that skill, you'll struggle in business, I believe. And that's probably the first point that I would talk about too there. The second piece of advice, I think I use a term which we're all familiar with, which is kind of master your craft. 
and that is to become whatever the heck you do is to be extraordinarily good at it. You know, extraordinarily good at it. And that's got to be the, your ambition. Like, I'm so passionate about writing and writing books. And every day, you know, I'm trying to become a better writer. I said to someone the other day, it's just now that I actually feel like I'm a reasonable writer. And they kind of looked at me and shook their head and go, are you serious, dude? Like, you know, all these books, almost 300 people you've helped a coach to write, 3,000 articles over the last 10 years, and you're just starting to feel like you're a writer? And I kind of go, well, it's just the truth of it. That's what I feel like. And now I'm just getting the hang of it. So master your craft is that real key thing for me. And the third point, and I could have a 100 of these, but the third one for me is probably to sow more seeds. And what I mean by that is that something I'm actually very, very good at is I do think very long term. And I've, which of course at some stage will run out, I might add. But I, I'm very good at building relationships with people over a long period of time that ultimately pays off. And so one example of this was many, many years ago, I ran into a fella I met my publishers at the time and gave him a copy of my books. Uh, one of my books, 101 Ways to Market Your Business. His name is Robert Gerrish. And, of course, Robert has gone on and he started an organization called Flying Solo, which is a flying solo community for soloists. Now, they have about 90, 100,000 members in there now. So Robert got me to do some stuff. We swapped books. We became friends. Next thing, he asked me to fly down to Sydney and do some interviews for him to go on CBS. Now, I paid for that. I paid for the airfares. They didn't have any money. I had to fly down and spend thousands of dollars, rah, rah. But I did a number of those. And then one day, CBS came to me and gave me a really big project, you know, like big, you know, six figures type of thing to say, hey, thank you. And can you manage this project, which was a joint venture with Hewlett-Packard, blah, blah, blah. Then, of course, one of the people from CBS left CBS, and now he's running Inc.com out of New York. And for me... All of that sowing in the seed was me giving a guy who I'd never met before one of my books to say, hey, nice to meet you. That And Robert and I are obviously very good friends now as well. And I've done that throughout my life, sown seeds, sown seeds, you know, always conscious of how I act, how I treat others. My personal reputation and brand is everything to me. It is my most valued possession is my reputation and I will never do anything to damage it. And, you know, we all have haters. That's the part of life that you have, particularly when you raise your profile. But, you know, I know that I can hold my head high everywhere that I go. So then my three tips, I think in a very long-winded way, Jane, but they're three things that have proven very helpful to me in my life. Those are very, very valuable tips too. But my big takeaway from talking to you today really is to emphasize having the right attitude is so important and developing strong, genuine, authentic relationships because that's how the world goes around. It's all through relationships and your whole story with Flying Solo and CBS and Hewlett-Packard and Inc.com. It's funny how it's sort of just... It grows and it morphs into something even bigger. And it's all because somebody gets to know you, they like you, and they trust you. Absolutely. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. I'm so humbled by that as well in so many different ways, Jane. It's, you know, it comes back to that point, doesn't it, that we live in a world now where everyone is watching what we do in some shape or form. And I don't mean that in a creepy way, but I think it just means that we've got to be considered in our actions and that's funny, I was talking to a group of people about this yesterday, and I look at it and go, everything we do, we've just got to be considered. And that take in what we've learned, take in what we think about, take in the mistakes with all of those kind of things and be considered. 
So it's my advice there. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm sure people would love to find out so much more about you because, honestly, Andrew, I could talk to you all day. And I'm (laughs) going to have you back on the show again because I want to do an episode which is all about how to become an author and you're the man to speak to. But if someone wants to find out more about you or to find you, where would they go? Just andrewgriffiths.com. Or you Google me, Google Andrew Griffiths, and I, if I don't come up on the first page, I'm not doing my job properly, am I? <laughs> exactly. And then if we Google Andrew Griffiths and we look under images, we'll see your smiling face. <laughs> Which I got a pile, of videos, a pile of videos on my website that people might find helpful as well. But they'll be able to track it down. I've got to say, too, it's been so nice to be on your show, Jane. And I really look forward to coming back. It's just hard for you to get a word in edgewise with me, isn't it? Oh, well, I was going to say, but mind you, the show's all about interviewing you. It's not all about me. And I I can do another podcast all about me anytime, but I haven't done it yet. (laughs) Today is all about you, Mr. Andrew Griffiths. Okay, so I've learned so much so much from you over the past two years as well and also now everyone else is able to hear your story and it's so interesting because you've had an amazing life and you've bounced back and it's a never say die attitude and thank goodness there was that nurse looking after you otherwise I wouldn't be talking to you today you know when you when you had that decompression sickness and so I'm going to have Andrew's link on my show notes in janejacksoncoach.com on my website and also a list of the books that Andrew has written so that you can find out a lot more about this amazing author, Andrew Griffiths. So thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. I love talking to you and everyone will love listening to you as well. And we'll have you back on the show in a few months' time. Thank you so much, Jane. And thanks to uh, to all of your listeners as well. It's always nice to chat to you. And it's been very inspirational for me to watch your journey in the last few years has evolved. And you've written a fabulous book. So good on you. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been so much fun. And I think that's the meaning of life, just to enjoy it. Thank you. I agree. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Jane. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. There are over 180,000 book titles to choose, so give it a go and get your free audiobook today from audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. You've been listening to Jane Jackson Careers. Sign up to receive regular career advice at janejacksoncoach.com. Thanks for joining me today. For affordable career help, please check out my career success program. I provide a unique blend of online and live career coaching to help you take control of every aspect of your career or career change. If you aren't aware where you want to be in your career, let's talk. Check it out at thecareersacademy.online. The links are in my show notes.